Hello everyone, it's March 1st, 2022. This week we take a look at what the war between Ukraine and Russia means for spaceflight. This is a very international industry and it relies heavily on international cooperation. So when cooperation breaks down, things can get tricky. So let's take a closer look and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 348 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Yeah, so I've got a food-related banter nonsense topic. I brought a prop. Can you guys guess what the sound is? Um, tapping on something. Yeah. Uh, well, something plastic and yeah. smallish. Yeah. It's a soda bottle. At the risk of turning this show into a Coca-Cola commercial, um, <laughs> I was I was traveling for business this week, and I stopped at a store to pick up snacks for the drive home. And like, I was I was leaving town. Uh, for a four hour drive, but I was leaving town pretty early in the morning, but I was like, you know, I, I know that I'm going to need snacks. I know that I'm going to need caffeine on top of the breakfast and coffee that I was about to pick up. Right. So, um, I picked up a soda and I went to the cooler to, to grab a Coke and I noticed a label that I didn't recognize. It's, it's a limited edition Coke called Starlight. And it's actually, it's a really pretty label. It's like a pink label with like purple and orange highlights. So it looks kind of like a nebula and it's got like a star field splattered across it. And in the corner, so so I'm like, okay, starlight. I don't, I don't know what starlight flavor is. And I looked in the corner, it says very helpfully space flavored. (laughs) And so of course I had to pick it up. (laughs) Yeah. Right, right, right. Exactly. And, And, and so here's the weird thing, like. When I eventually opened it, it mostly tasted vanilla. Then there's like a cotton candy that kind of comes up behind it. And then after that, there's sort of a cologne-like flavor, um, which which sounds really bad. It's not – it wasn't unpleasant. The whole thing was too sweet, right? It, it wasn't something that I was super uh, enjoying. But like there's kind of this like, yeah, floral, musky kind of cologne flavor at the end. And so – I don't know if this is how it was marketed, but it reminded me of nothing so much as the space scented cologne that ULA commissioned mm. uh, years ago. I don't even remember what that smelled like. It, it didn't. It didn't really smell like space, to be honest. There was a little bit of like a burned metal at the very edges of my <laughs> of my sensory perception. But th- honestly, I wonder if they bought that recipe from whatever perfumer toned it down and put a little bit of it in this Coke and just didn't even think about the fact that it wasn't the cologne was cologne with a little bit of a little bit of like burned metal scent in it and didn't take out any of the cologne elements of the scent or (laughs) maybe they spent a bunch of money to buy it started working with it and realized they that they couldn't adapt it to just the flavor of space. And so I think the marketing for this is like, oh, it's like a camp a campfire like stargazing thing. And so it's supposed to be like marshmallowy, but it's really just like vanilla and and cotton candy and then like a little bit of like a musky at the end. And it's it's weird. Uh it's not my favorite. I would drink it again just because it's like a novelty. Um <laughs> But I was really excited because I, I was like, wow, did they really 
Like it didn't occur to me that it could actually be the flavor of space. And then when I started drinking, I was like, okay, maybe that's what they were going for. Even if they didn't really, didn't really nail it. I mean, there's like a little bit of ozone in it at the end. So <laughs> like that, it kind of makes me think that it's supposed to be actually space flavored and they had to dump in a bunch of vanilla and crap on top of it to hide the, <laughs> the flavor. And, and by the end, <laughs> yeah. And by the end, I wonder if the, uh, if the focus groups were like, I don't taste any space flavors. And they're like, oh, that's right, because it's, uh, you know, stargazing flavor. <laughs> but just a, a, it's a weird cultural phenomenon. You know, it's like Crystal Coke, but worse, because it doesn't taste very good. I think I'll just stick to Diet Coke, though. So Well, okay, so, so there... They have a uh, Space Zero. Far, yeah, they, oh, they have, have a Space Zero, zero. version. Well, I have to try that. <laughs> and and I would recommend giving it a shot. I mean, it's it's not horrible. It's not going to be something that you go back to and long for once it's no no longer sold. But like, I'm kind of wondering if I should pick up a bottle and not open it and just keep it as a weird thing. Yeah, <laughs> but kind of cool. Bottles of Coke are heavy, and like I've got enough junk lying around. <laughs> In the news this week, well, among other things, uh, sanctions. Uh, yeah. So, Ben, you have kind of what looks to be – you wrote the majority of this segment, and it looks uh, – it has a slightly more like editorial uh, tone to it. Yeah, it's it's politics, right? I, I hate throwing politics in, but we, we have to do it when something big happens. Like I think it's just context that you really do want to understand. So – um, obviously Russia invaded Ukraine this week. News came out like this morning that peace talks are being planned. So hopefully, uh, by the time the show comes out, this, you know, there won't be war in Europe, but right now there is a land war happening in Europe, which is kind of terrifying. Um, the, uh, the Ukrainians are just amazing. Uh, during all this, they're, they're really, I mean, the, the thing is that like Ukraine has been ready for a Russian invasion, uh, for ages. And like, we forget that Russia annexed Crimea, right? And we're going to, we're going to talk about the fallout of, uh, uh, the annexation of Crimea because that's an important thing to set the stage here. But, uh, you know, Ukrainians are like, yeah, we, Russia's been eyeing us for a long time. This isn't a surprise while the rest of the world is like, what? So. <laughs> kind of uh, kind of interesting to see the blind spots that we have. Um, just you know, e even if you follow world news, like sometimes you you just forget that things have happened. So anyway, um, Russia invaded Ukraine, and the U.S. um said that they they're not going to be putting uh troops on the ground, or they're they're not going to be putting troops in Ukraine. They did ship troops to uh fellow NATO countries and. Uh, instead of supporting Ukraine militarily, um, they have imposed sanctions on Russia, trying to use economics to de-incentivize the invasion. Well, the invasion happened anyway, even though there were threats of sanctions. And then sanctions were applied, and it was kind of a too little too late situation. But I, I wanted to talk about how those sanctions... Yeah, Colin in the chat says strongly worded messages, right? We wrote a very stern letter. I don't know why it didn't work. Hmm. And, and so I want to talk about the, the impact of these sanctions on space. And I definitely did not get every uh, area of space that is being impacted, but I, I tried to get 
as wide a view as I could. So let's start with French Guiana. I think this is one of the, the most direct and, and actual impacts. Um, so I, I like direct and explicit, I guess is probably the way to go because Roscosmos decided to stop cooperating with Europe on Soyuz launches. And they, they said, we are pulling out of French Guiana. We're, we're taking our people out. You know, we're leaving the ball and going home, uh, cause all the Soyuz are, are still there in, uh, in French Guiana. But it, it was very directly tied to, uh, sanctions, not only, uh, U.S. sanctions, but, uh, EU sanctions. So they, they withdrew all of their support staff. And the effect of that is that all future launches until they decide to come back, uh, all future launches of Soyuz are completely grounded. Um, they cannot launch without that support staff. This most, uh, immediately affects Galileo. There were two Galileo satellites that were planned to be launched in April. Um, but of course this affects the entire manifest and may have, uh, some knock on effects. You know, some other vehicles may, uh, wind up launching sooner or, um, if, if Soyuz comes back online, uh, other, uh, other payloads may be delayed to get caught up on Soyuz. I, I don't know, but sort of the, the running theme of this whole segment is going to be, this wasn't surprising. Um, so it, Israel, the, um, the director general, I think is his title of Ariane Spas already said that they were kind of expecting, uh, institutional customers to start switching away from Soyuz and using Vega C and Ariane six. Um, and part of that, so institutional really means like NASA, right? And, um, that, that's actually kind of an interesting little swap. Um, usually Ariane Spas caters to commercial customers. Um, but they're, they're seeing Vega C and Ariane 6 as potentially being, uh, government launchers. And part of that is the relationship that they built up with NASA, um, getting web up in the air. Uh, web had such exacting standards that needed to be followed. Um, you know, they even, redesigned part of their fairing so that they could support, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope. So it's kind of, kind of interesting. Um, and, and the, 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 the result of institutional customers potentially switching to Vega and Ariane 6 is that Soyuz then in becomes a potential, um, commercial, uh, vehicle. Or, or focusing on, on commercial customers. Ariane Spas specifically said that constellation companies, uh, may well see Soyuz as a, as more attractive, uh, than Vega C and Ariane 6. The, the future for Soyuz wasn't certain going forward. The use of Soyuz after 2023 was going to be dependent on like closing the business case. They, they hadn't really figured that out. Um, but you know, there's a potential for launching Soyuz a few times a year out of French Guiana, uh, you know, after, uh, 2023. And again, that, that would be commercial launches. And then the, uh, the institutional customers are expected to switch, uh, away from Soyuz. So not terribly surprising that, uh, that Russia didn't see this as a, as a huge penalty to themselves. Um, you know, there, there wasn't that much 
um, work going to be happening on Soyuz in the future. But delaying the Galileo launch, I think, is, is a front is the wrong word. Like this isn't an affront. It's not an offensive. Uh, it's not, you know, a, a, a declaration of war. Like it's nothing that dramatic, but like delaying Galileo is, is pretty darn serious, right? Like GPS and its, its analogs. It's really important uh, to civilians and to governments. Um, so that that seems like a really um, big piece on the chessboard. So we'll see what happens. Um, another fairly direct link is Venera D. Um, this is the potentially international cooperation to send uh, a mission to Venus. Um, and it's something that I've been really excited about. Um, but uh, Roscosmos says that it's now inappropriate uh, to continue cooperating with the U.S. on Venera. Again, though, this is a little bit of an easy rejection. Um, Jeff Faust in particular was saying this, this isn't that big of a deal. Um, just because, uh, it, the, the project has been going so slow and has been delayed so many times that it, it's unlikely that it would fly by the end of the decade. So, you know, saying it's inappropriate to cooperate on something that's way off in the future and has been delayed a number of times and who knows may never make it off the ground. Kind of, kind of a low hanging fruit, I suppose. Then there's ISS. Boy, I feel like ISS, we go back and forth on whether ISS is going to be a pawn uh, to political machinations or not. And so ISS is, is a fairly direct link, but it's almost uh, a straw man uh, link. So um, when Biden announced the first tranche of, of sanctions, um, he specifically said they were designed to degrade Russia's aerospace industry, including their space program the first step up of sanctions from the US were mostly targeted at high-tech imports. Um, so, so it's, you know, it, it is very uh, targeted towards uh, aerospace as well as the modernization of Russia's military. And that, that was kind of like the first step sanctions as sanctions sort of ramped up. Um, they, they were mostly coming from, uh, from other countries, but like, I don't know if you guys heard this, but Russia has, now it's now been decided that Russia is going to be cut out of the SWIFT um, banking communication system, which is a really big deal. Um, the U.S. sanctioned a bunch of Russian banks and bankers, but actually cutting them out of world banking uh, via SWIFT is really, really dramatic. So with, with all this, Rogozin lashed out on Twitter. I mean, he was really angry. Um and he said that the ISS depended on Russia for reboosts and threatened to allow the ISS to deorbit. Uh, it wasn't a, a direct threat. It was sort of a, you know, nice space station you have there. Shame if anything happened to it kind of gangster uh, threat. But, you know, that it, it was really, really what Rogozin was saying was, well, if you don't drop the sanctions, maybe we will stop reboosting station. And you know, when station deorbits, maybe it'll land in China. Like, is that really what you want to do? It's, it's just, it's such a weird thing to say. I mean, like, I don't think that's it's, the real it, concern is where it lands. You know what I mean? Like, why is he saying this? It's just it so is, it, it is because what he was saying was like, if this comes down on China, the U S looks really, really, really bad. And I don't, I don't think that that's actually the case, right? David, I, I agree with you where it comes down is not the biggest problem, but Rogozin is trying to insist that it is it because hmm. this is a 
threat, not a statement of fact. Uh, Colin in the chat says, yeah, it's a very Rogozin thing to say. I agree. Yeah. So with regard to station boosting, um, and this is something that I'd kind of uh, forgotten about, but uh, there's actually a Cygnus docked right now, which in about one month's time will be conducting a boosting operation to see if it's feasible. Um, this is something that, you know, that is still to be determined, but uh, there are other ways of perhaps like keeping station in orbit. So maybe it, you know, will not be necessary to rely on Russia for that. So that's something that uh, he, you know, failed to mention in his tweet. Obviously, that wouldn't be. And it, it's it's so weird because like if Russia really stops cooperating, it it doesn't matter if we can if we can reboost the station with the Cygnus or anything else. Um, at that point, if if things come to that, it has broken down so far mm-hmm. that you know station really isn't going to be viable. Uh, for its intended use. But like all this to say, using ISS as a, as a tool, as a, as a political, uh, lever, really, first off, it rings hollow. They're, they're probably not going to do this, almost certainly not going to do this. But it also is fairly disrespectful to the intention of station, right? Uh, station is there to foster cooperation and communication. And ISS is one of the big reasons that the recovery from the Cold War was so good. Yeah, Colin says it's the get-along sweater, right? It's this is this is a giant sweater that you can shove two people into and force them to talk to each other. And like there there are all these really interesting, probably apocryphal stories of of Russian and US uh, engineers being able to pass along messages that wouldn't have been able to um, go from one country to the other any other way, but because ISS had relatively free lines of communication, you know, it, it's, it's such a, it's such an interesting, yeah, get along shirt. Um, like I, I really think it's a, a cool tool politically when used the way it should be and the way it was intended to be. Um, and to, to threaten it is yeah, both a little insulting and and not particularly effective. So those are like some some very direct uh, effects, um, but there are also some you know less direct effects. So like Atlas V uses RD one eighties, and potentially you know that that could be uh, a source of trouble. But ULA intentionally collected all of the RD one eighties that they would need to finish out uh, Atlas V. Atlas V's life. And not only do they have the engines to do it, but they also have the in-house expertise. It's really fun. Um, Toy Bruno was saying, yeah, like we know enough about these engines that we don't need any external cooperation. And Toy Bruno said that he personally has experience um, flying other people's rockets. Hmm. Um, and apparently the U.S. had a program where they collected rockets built by other countries and flew them on their own. I, I don't know exactly what's going on here. Yeah, Colin says quote unquote collected. Somebody on Twitter, there, there's a link to, to a, a Twitter thread discussing this, but like somebody described it as um, uh, rockets that fell off the back of the truck. Yeah. Um, like it's uh, it, it kind, of, kind of an interesting program that I hadn't heard about. Maybe I should uh, look into that in the future. But, you know, also reminder, the reason that Atlas V uses RD-180s in the first place um, is because Congress asked ULA to do it. They wanted to provide an outlet for uh, these rocket engineers. So the halt of DOD 
um, awarding contracts to rockets with Russian engines, but particularly the RD-180. The fact that DOD is not awarding contracts to these vehicles anymore is is not the reason that Atlas V was retired, right? Atlas V was retired because it's time to move on to Vulcan. But you got to think ULA feels pretty good about the decision <laughs> to move on to Vulcan <laughs> at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, we, we talked a little bit about Cygnus, but Starliner is also involved in this story. Um, ben Hallert reminded us that Starliner uses Russian power converters in order to be able to charge its station. Um, we don't know how that will be affected for, for future Starliner vehicles. Um, but yeah, kind of interesting to, to keep in mind that, you know, this kind of echoes through the space industry. You know, even Starliner, a domestic crew vehicle, is is going to be affected or potentially could be affected. So whatever effects these sanctions this week have, they they won't be the first effects from U.S. sanctions on Russia, right? So there's uh, the RD-180s, which were uh, stockpiled by ULA in response to the sanctions imposed after Russia annexed Crimea. Tory says that he was asked by the government to collect all the engines and then shut it down. Um, and, and that seems pretty reasonable. Um, but, you know, Crimea had pretty drastic effects um, and, and sparked a lot of, of sanctions with heavier effects than, than these this week are, are likely to have. On top of that, natural shifts in the market have reduced the number of commercial customers actually launching on Russian vehicles. Instead, they're able to fly on uh, U.S. vehicles, which is is pretty cool. Um, but it's it's funny that you know we were already shifting away from reliance on Russia as Russia continues to do pretty horrible things and um, continues to be um, denounced by the U.S. Um, Jeff Faust uh, said that if Russia decided to terminate its participation in ISS in 2024, there really isn't much for its human spaceflight program to do. Uh, this is kind of walking back a little bit to talking about ISS. But if ISS is really going to lose Russia, I mean, if Russia pulls out of ISS, ISS stops being a thing, I, I think. But mm-hmm. um, not only are there multiple reasons why it's unlikely uh, that we've already talked about, but keep in mind, what, what else is, is Russia going to do if they're not flying to ISS? Um, Deathkin in the chat says, as for the cosmonaut core, it's pretty cavalier to set them aside because if, if they weren't going to ISS, what would they be doing? Uh, not much. They, right. They could do solo flights of Soyuz in orbit, but you know, that's not particularly appetizing. Uh, they could part, partner with China to fly to their space station. Um, they could start their own space station. Colin in the chat says, uh, don't they have plans for their own, uh, space station? And, and yeah, Colin, I think you're right. I think they were talking about separating off, um, all or some of the Russian segment and starting a new, uh, a new space station. But that was at the end of the life of ISS. I don't know if they had any plans to start their own standalone station without um, using the modules at ISS. Um, and if they pull out of ISS saying, oh, well, we can't afford to reboot the station anymore, taking part of the station, moving it <laughs> and building a new uh, space station on it really doesn't seem uh, very internally consistent. But, you know, 
Maybe they don't really care about that consistency. Yeah, I mean, I'd say at, the, at this moment, Ross Cosmos and, you know, like anyone within the space industry as a whole is trying to do their best. To, they're trying to make the best of a bad situation. So this is what happens when there's war, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's yeah. just there's a lot of nonsensical, you know, just rhetoric being thrown back and forth. And you can't make heads or tails of it because that's how war is. I mean, that's just my two cents. So, yeah, no, no, I, I agree. Um, and, and I think... Um, just because it's still fresh in my mind, uh, remember when we were talking about the Prechall module that was sent to the ISS? That was, I believe, repurposed from some uh, standalone station that Russia had considered, but they scrapped plans for that years ago. Oh, so okay. they did have the idea of their own standalone station, but that's last decade at some point they put the kibosh on that. So just a reminder, like... Ragozin bluffs and blusters all the time, right? He's a very, a very loud person. But after Crimea, he threatened to end the U.S.'s access to crew flights uh, on Soyuz, right? That was before commercial crew was up and running. Uh, and he also threatened to halt RD-180 exports. Neither actually happened. And both of those threats wound up pushing commercial crew uh, forward in the eyes of Congress, like Congress realized, hey, this is really important. Let's get this going. And also, uh, you know, emphasize the importance of domestic engines. And I don't know if, if Congress has, um, sent out money specifically to help produce U.S. rocket engines, um, anticipating uh, a lack of cooperation from Russia, but like we all know what happened to the RD-180, like which end <laughs> decided mm-hmm. to stop buying and selling. And the bluff and bluster from Rogozin is is not strictly true. The U.S.'s export restrictions um, don't directly affect their civil space operations, at least according to a statement from NASA. And the, the negotiations uh, to do free uh, seat swaps uh, between the U.S. and Russia to ISS, those negotiations are still continuing. So NASA doesn't take these these threats very seriously. I, I don't know. Like the the whole series of tweets from Rogozin really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. He says that that these sanctions aren't new. They're like he's like, hey, remember these? Uh, you know, the effect of these sanctions actually took place in was it 2019 when Crimea was annexed? But like he he said these sanctions suck. Maybe we'll deorbit the ISS about it. And then he says, actually, we've already had sanctions applied to us for a long time. And those are the sanctions that really have teeth. And we're like, yeah, of, of course, like this, th- these new sanctions aren't enough to keep you from participating in ISS. He, he said it trying to convey the idea that, oh, we, we don't really care. This, it, this doesn't really matter. But like also, it's a good indication that, yeah, it doesn't matter. So why are you throwing a fit about it? You can't have it both ways. And, you know, th- this is th- his intention was to say, we, we don't care because we'll soldier on. Um, and while that kind of takes the teeth out of his argument, it also is true. Um, it's also true of Russia's banking situation. They've been preparing to be kicked out of SWIFT for a long time. Um, they've been stockpiling foreign currency um, with the intention of, of um, maybe not um, safeguarding against being kicked out of SWIFT, but certainly safeguarding against uh, the U.S. sanctioning um, the major banks in Russia. Um, they're like, yeah, well, we, we already got dollars and euros, not only stockpiled, but also they get dollars and euros 
pretty much every time they sell oil and they are one of the are they the second largest oil producing company uh behind the US like it, it just the sanctions really aren't as heavy as the US would like you to believe and they're not as heavy as Russia would like you to believe so um while this whole thing really is kind of crazy remember the US isn't doing that much to slap Russia on the wrist um like they're they're barely getting up to a wrist slap um the the space industry is going to be affected but not heavily right like it, this isn't going to dramatically change the way that we do business although you know this is only going to help uh private uh space companies in the US to get up and running like this only really helps the the US space economy it sucks that it's probably going to have you know a mild chilling effect on the russian uh space industry you know we we think that at least i think that any space is good space as long as it's not military you know like if we can stay away from uh space being used for war that would be fantastic but like any time humanity puts something into space, I think it's a good thing. Uh, anytime we do science, whether it's Europe being very successful doing commentary science, or if it's Europe um, not being very successful landing a rover, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's all good. Um, and on the whole, this kind of just shifts the balance. It's not really stopping humanity's efforts to be a space-born civilization. No, I get, I, I feel like the, the biggest loser in this is the Russian space program, and that's because they don't really have, as far as I can tell, many any positions of strength other than being a part of the ISS. Yeah, I think it's it's more the the Russian tech industry that's taking the punch. But you're talking about in in the scope of space being affected by the. They're war. not doing themselves favors by this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah, I agree. So. Sorry for the politics. Um, uh, I realize that I'm talking more and more about politics on this show uh, as time goes on. Not my intention. It's just politics is becoming really, really important and impactful <laughs> on all sorts of things. And, and it makes me it makes me happy to be able to say like, hey, you know, here's one time when politics aren't going to affect space too terribly much. And, and I think uh, I don't know if this disclaimers really necessary given that our listeners are listening to a space podcast on purpose but obviously the human cost on the ground is far more important than what we're talking about but just mm -hmm. so it's not a misplaced priority it's just yeah it's, it's what we do <laughs> yeah it's it's good it's good to be explicit about that it's been disheartening uh is maybe the politest way i can put it um to to wake up every morning and and listen to the news and just hear about more and more deaths and i mean frankly war crimes like there's video footage of civilians being targeted um it's it's really really horrible but it's also been uh, incredibly heartening to see how ukraine has responded and um if we have any listeners in ukraine who are are still listening and don't have better things to do with their time that i that sounds really uh really insulting i'm sorry i mean if if anybody still has time to stop and listen and and do the fun things in life like listening to podcasts y'all y'all are doing amazing um we wish you the best um there are story after story after story um talking about how amazing the 
uh, Ukrainians who have stayed in the country uh, are doing. They just couldn't care less in so many situations. Um, and then when they're fighting, they, they're, you know, resisting in such an incredible way. Um, like I, I heard a news story about a, um, a brewery in Kiev that stopped making beer and started making Molotov cocktails. Like that's incredible, um, to, to see the country just stand together and say, no, you, you can't do this. Sorry. Um, and then to the Ukrainians that have, uh, have had to flee. It's, it's incredibly difficult. I can't imagine having to flee, uh, my home due to war. I, I can't imagine it. And I'm glad to see so many countries opening their borders and just saying, come on in. Let's, let's take care of you. Um, I don't know how universal this is, but I saw a photo of a train station um, with a, an enormous amount of groceries piled up in plastic bags because there was one uh, one mother and a child um, fleeing Ukraine on the train. And every time the train stopped, people were getting off to buy groceries and clothes for the pair. And they wound up having to just leave it on the platform because there was too much. There's no happy war, but there are somewhat compensatory stories that come out of war. So yeah, thank you, Dennis. I think it is really important to, to state clearly that there are hundreds of people dead, dying, and will be killed. And it's atrocious and horrible, but we're watching and, and we're impressed and we wish you the best. Okay, so we're doing three short and sweets this week. And Dennis, what is the first one? First up, Relativity Qualifies Rocket Structural Test. After successfully removing Terran-1's inner stage from the test stand upon completion of its Structural Acceptance Test Procedure, or ATP test, Relativity Space has announced that all full-scale structural testing has been finalized. ATP tests are conducted on flight hardware to ascertain the materials, manufacturing processes, and workmanship meet specs, and that the hardware is acceptable for intended usage. The company's first flight vehicle, the 3D-printed Terran 1, is now ready to face flight loads. Uh, next, Dream Chaser looking to land in Japan. Sierra Space has entered into a memorandum of understanding with Kanematsu Corporation and Oita Prefecture regarding the possible landing of Dream Chaser at Oita Airport. The local government has been looking into turning Oita Airport into a spaceport. Making it a landing site for Dream Chaser would allow Sierra Space to expand its selection of possible landing sites for return missions from the International Space Station. Virgin Orbit is already scheduled to carry out a launch from Oita as early as next year. Initial flights of Dream Chaser will land at Kennedy Space Center, though further landing site options are being considered across the globe. And then lastly, China says Moon Impactor, not Chang'e 5. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs is claiming that the debris forecasted to impact the lunar surface in March is not the upper stage of the Chang'e 5 T1 mission. The ministry instead claims that the upper stage of that mission has already entered the Earth's atmosphere and burned up. Analysis from JPL and other independent observers do, however, indicate a long March upper stage, though this remains circumstantial. Additionally, in the the video conference held by the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, there is only reference to a Chang'e 5 mission and not the Chang'e 5 T1 mission specifically, though the questioner had specified the 2014 T1 mission. All right, so now we move on to this week in spaceflight history, and we have three winners, so not a lot. We have the Greek, Law Loving, uh, and Deskin Miller, who gets bonus points for 
I think Dennis, you said deciphering my well. overly convoluted clue, but <laughs> uh, they they stuck it out <laughs> the whole way and managed to get it exactly what I was thinking. So, yeah, yeah. the clue was five minus seven equals forty six plus twenty one. That does sound pretty mad. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, if you could rationalize that for us, <laughs> copy that. I'll do my best. So, right, the event was the second of March two thousand four, and it was the launch of the Rosetta spacecraft. This being such a biggie. I uh, will tell you right now, this is going to get us to the comet and then basically stop there. And so maybe we can have the, you know, orbital insertion or the the, the fillet lander reaching the comet uh, as a future <laughs> event, potentially. But uh, right now, I thought there was just so much interesting stuff that happened during the, uh, the planning and launch phases and just talking about the spacecraft itself, that that could uh, merit an entire... A uh, little twisif on its own. Going all the way back to its inception, it was uh, initially uh, born as part of uh, ESA's Horizon 2000 program. And so this was a program that included missions like uh, SOHO and um, uh, XMM Newton, the X-ray uh, observatory. And originally it was going to be a sample return, but uh, NASA at one point had pulled out and that kind of reduce the funding situation and so they decided to make this a an orbiter with a lander uh, essentially and so rosetta is the orbiter and the landing spacecraft fillet um which i won't really talk at all about <laughs> or very little about today um is the the lander that went and landed on a comet ultimately originally it was going to launch in early 2003 and rendezvous with uh the Comet 46P uh, Wirtanen, eight years later. And so I'll tell you right there, uh, 46P, that's one of the numbers in the clue. Uh, but with all those numbers, I'll, I'll do it all together, tie it together with a nice little bow once I introduce all the different aspects to it. And so uh, unfortunately, though, there was an issue with the maiden flight of the Ariane 5 ECA. Um, quite a few maiden flights of different Ariane 5s had trouble, and this was one of them. So ultimately, uh, this mission this maiden flight was ended in an explosion so essentially the first stage uh one of the the Vulcan 2 engine suffered an anomaly and this was already at t plus 96 seconds into the flight and then um at t plus 178 seconds uh, a flight control perturbation developed and so it started to lose control they started to go off course and nine seconds later the shroud had jettisoned but now it was not uh, in the flight envelope that it was supposed to be in and not until t plus 456 seconds did uh, range safety finally terminate it and all the debris splashed down into the ocean uh, safely and not you know, hurting anybody and ultimately what happened with this uh this Vulcan 2 engine was that a uh, a coolant tube failed uh in the engine nozzle because of that it led to a series of issues that ultimately had uh them lose control of the spacecraft or sorry lose control of the launch vehicle and as a result the payload which was hot bird 7 um there's a secondary payload as well but the hot bird 7 uh communication satellite was lost you know, with this uh, is kind of a big deal, and this was happening, you know, shortly before Rosetta was on the docket to fly on an Ariane 5, and it caused Rosetta to miss its 10-day launch window. And as a result, it could not go to 46P Wirtanen, and they had to figure out a whole big thing. And ultimately, it cost 70 million euros uh, to uh, 
basically keep the spacecraft in one piece and ultimately able to fly in the future. But they learned from previous mistakes. So the Galileo spacecraft, right, the first orbiter of Jupiter, that had some very highly publicized issues after it was delayed um, related to the shuttle. Uh, it was originally going to fly in the shuttle. And because of its delays, ultimately, the high-gain antenna wouldn't unfurl all the way. And so this is kind of an infamous issue that Galileo had. And there was a whole big, really cool uh, history behind that, if you uh, are unfamiliar with it, uh, how they were still able to get data even though their high-gain antenna wasn't operational. To avoid that situation, right, this is, you know, Galileo was back in the 90s. Uh, Rosetta, they immediately stored it in a clean room at Carew. They took the high-gain antenna, the solar arrays, and five instruments uh, off of the <laughs> of the spacecraft so they could be kind of taken care of separately. Anything, any hold-downs or tension mechanisms were released. Uh, the reaction wheels were occasionally spun to keep them. Uh, you know, loose, I guess. Uh, the instruments were recalibrated, presumably some of those ones that were taken off, and everything was revalidated before launch. And so ultimately, Rosetta does end up being operational, if you, if you didn't know that already. But specifically, this was an interesting bit, I thought, of history. Part of one of the issues that Galileo had uh, was that when they detanked its uh, hypergals, um, some residual propellant in one of them ultimately started you know, ruining the tank, forming a uh, fuming, uh, that what's it, red? Red fuming nitric acid. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it must have been, you know, NTO. And so as a result, uh, they wanted to not detank uh, the NTO tank on Rosetta because uh, this, this stress corrosion cracking could occur. So they didn't want to drain it and they didn't want to depressurize it. They wanted to just leave it as is. But you couldn't just go and take it out of the spacecraft and set it aside somewhere so that you don't have a hazardous material right in the core of your spacecraft because that would involve basically taking apart uh, Rosetta. Like I said, it's right in the center, essentially, and in the core. And so how can you do all the uh, assembly, integration, and testing when you try to, you know, put those things that you've taken off back in there or take them off in the first place uh, while you've got this hazardous material around? And so they <laughs> they they detank the, uh, the other... Uh, uh, hypergolic propellant that was on Rosetta, the uh, MMH. And uh, so, so at least there wouldn't be any explosion threat, um, but they otherwise uh, had to do a lot of uh, essentially arguing that, you know, we'll let us, uh, let our technicians in there, we'll take safety precautions. Uh, there, yeah. We don't expect any NTO to leak out, and so everything should be fine. And they ultimately got to do that. And so I, I thought that was such a weird, like an interesting flip on the head is to leave yeah. the really dangerous stuff in your spacecraft <laughs> as is because taking it out actually might end up causing issues down the road. And so they did. And okay, so that's fine. But your delay, uh, right? These comets, they're on long periods and it's usually tricky trajectories to get to them. So 46P Wurtonen is out of the picture. So they looked at what kind of comets they could go and target and ultimately came up with their new plan, which is to go to its eventual target, 67P Churyumov Gerasimenko. And so I think at this point now I can go and give my, my clue, which was 5 minus 7 equals 46 plus 21. So the 5 minus 7 is referencing the fact that the Ariane 5 lost the Hotbird 7, and that equals, that resulted in... Instead of going to 46P Wurtonen, you add 21 and you go to 67P churyumov Grasimenko. And so that's where that highly convoluted numbering mm -hmm. and terrible equation uh, ultimately came from. Okay, I get it. Okay. So anyway, so now Rosetta has a target. 
Um, you know, there was a delay, uh, basically it took another year until it launched, but it was going to go to 67P, Churyumov, Gerasimenko. Now, the other way you could have interpreted my clue, which actually is even better, would be that its new trajectory included a flyby of some asteroids, including asteroid 21 Lutetia. And so you could have taken 46P, Wirtanen, add 21 Lutetia, and get 67P, churyumov Uh That was uh, Deskin's answer. And, uh, you know, I think you should get bonus bonus points when you make the clue <laughs> even better than how I made the clue. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> right? So that's uh, well, well, the, the super bonus points for Deskin for that. <laughs> so now, what happens when you go and change, you know, your target? Well, uh, this comet was uh, much larger. It was about two kilometers versus the 700 kilometer size of uh, Wirtanen. And so they were expecting to be about twice as massive. What kind of differences will that mean? Well, they assume the same surface compressive strength, Young's modulus and tensile strength, uh, which is going to be very important for the lander. And uh, semi-spoiler, the lander had some issues reaching the comet and staying on the comet. And so uh, I am not going to look into that too much. And basically, uh, you know, stay tuned at some point in the future. We might <laughs> be talking about that. Um, whether or not those uh, assumptions that they were the same between these two comets uh, was true. Um, there was not really any changes that needed to be made uh, regarding the thermal control, uh, the the, the period of these these comets was fine because it was going to be orbiting them in both cases. and uh, But the, the biggest difference was that there was going to be uh, potentially higher touchdown velocities for the lander, um, which was going to use cold gas thrusters and a harpoon to try to you know slow itself down and lodge itself on the surface. But, you know, with twice the mass, that's going to be twice the force of gravity that, you know, and twice the acceleration that the lander would experience on its descent. And so the separation system between the lander and spacecraft was upgraded. And ultimately, uh, like I said, there was, there's an interesting uh, story behind the lander and uh, how not perfectly nominal the landing was. But that's for another twist. So finally, we're ready to launch this vehicle. <laughs> so instead of going on the, uh, so now it's it, it's going to launch on an Ariane Five G Plus uh, on March second, two thousand four, at 07.17 UTC from Crew, and it I thought this was neat. It had a, as a backup, they could have used a Proton uh, launch from Baikonur uh, a year later in two thousand five. And so uh, that's presumably the same target, and thus I have to imagine the, the way the trajectories worked out would have been quite different. And so with this uh, Ariane 5 launch, uh, they, they shot it directly into a hyperbolic Earth escape trajectory. And it had a nice uh, windy trip uh, with an Earth flyby, a Mars flyby, and then a, two more Earth flybys, along with a couple asteroids on the way uh, before it wouldn't. It would be uh, 10 years later in 2014 that it would reach uh, churyumov Gerasimenko. And uh, a strong recommendation uh, to Google or check our show notes. There's a pretty awesome selfie that reminds me a lot of the um, the uh, Tianwen-1 orbiter around Mars right now taking uh, uh, selfies of itself uh, with Mars in the background. Uh, Rosetta did that uh, during its flyby of Mars. And so you can kind of see its solar panel sticking out over the red Martian landscape. So really cool. And so the, uh, you know, the spacecraft had a huge suite of instruments for uh, different types of remote sensing, as well as I believe some in-situ stuff, uh, uh, potentially. I mean, I guess magnetometers are for in-situ. So it had imagers, microscopes, uh, mass spectrometers, gas chromatographs, 
magnetometers, plasma sensors, and a radio wave experiment. So the whole suite of instruments. Uh, one, you know, fun fact about them is that included on there was the Alice camera, which is a uh, imager, which um, was PI'd by Alan Stern and flew on New Horizons as well. That's uh, it's always cool. Or sorry, sorry. Alice is a oh, it's an imaging spectrograph. Um, yeah, and it did later fly on a, a, a version of it. You know, upgraded flew on New Horizons. But uh, I love seeing that kind of heritage. You know, it's only when you look at these spacecraft in detail that you realize just how much, uh, how important heritage is for a lot of these missions. And so the spacecraft itself is a box. Uh, it's about three tons all in. Uh, it had two huge, uh, you know, 32 square meter solar panels each. So 64 square meters in all. About 32 meters tip to tip. Even though Juno uh, has kind of now set the record for furthest, uh, or greatest heliocentric distance um, to still be under solar power, Rosetta was pretty much at the top of that uh, at, at its time. Uh, you know, breaking that record. The reason for that is uh, ESA just does not have the technology for an RTG developed, and they don't really, you know, no. go and borrow them from other nations. You know, that type of technology is guarded, I guess, or maybe uh, the plutonium as well. You know, there's issues with that. And so, anyway, it, I mean, it worked. Uh, that, that that was really cool. And, and there were some interesting uh, engineering challenges that they had to overcome. Uh, for example, at such large heliocentric distances, you don't want your radiators to necessarily be dumping off all the heat. <laughs> and so uh, louvers, which is a new term, I had not uh, heard of these before, but louvers, they're basically window blinds. And so these louvers were placed over all the radiators so they could, uh, or radiators, <laughs> I'm sure I'm radiators, making some people yeah. <laughs> cringe by saying that, um, potato, potato. Uh, and you could adjust how much uh, heat is going to be uh, given away. And so during some times uh, to keep the spacecraft a little cooler, when it's going out beyond, you know, approaching 5 AU from the sun, that's pretty far out there. And so, uh, you know, inverse square law and all that good stuff. Yeah, it goes from uh, like obviously the Earth orbit, like all the way out to where the sun is so much fainter. So I guess it has to be capable of both of those environments. And so mm. uh, and using louvers, which... I mean, that's pretty simple. It seems, uh, that's a term that I am familiar with. Isn't that just what window blinds kind of are? Except that they're usually like generally made out of wood. Isn't that what a louver is, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the, yeah. Like a non spacecraft louver. I, I yeah. saw. Yeah. Like that's how I visualize it. Wood. Yeah. I mean, we, there are also louvers used in interior design. If you have, uh, uh, a vent for like air conditioning or heating, yeah. uh, you'll yeah. often have louvers in there that you can use to, change how much air comes out. Although I, I will note, though, that the, the louvers on Rosetta were not, in fact, made of wood. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> have we have we talked about wood in space as a spacecraft material yet? Because it's, I think it's more sat. interesting. We right? mentioned it. They used cork, right, as the heat shield for uh, the old spy satellite return. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Coronas? Uh, the Corona, yeah. I think no they were kidding. made out of cork. I'm pretty sure. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. That sounds about right. Yeah. And the spacecraft, I really, really liked learning about the uh, the both the RCS as well. <laughs> I liked learning about the propulsion system on it. it, it it's it's pretty cool what they did. Rosetta had 24 paired uh, bipropellant thrusters, and each one was capable of only 10 newtons each. Um, but you got a lot of delta v out of it overall. And these were, as you know, I mentioned earlier. Um, hypergolic, uh, MMH and NTO, and uh, a small little amount of uh, uh, nitrogen monoxide was added to prevent corrosion of the tank's titanium alloy. And so that was also an issue for why they 
uh, didn't want to depressurize the tank when they were, you know, had it sitting in the spacecraft uh, during its downtime is because if they depressurized it, uh, there'd be uh, differential amounts of NTO and NO, you know, leaving, I guess. And, uh, and as a result, then the NO would not be able to do its job uh, quite so much. And so um, the, ti the titanium alloy is a very common one, evidently, uh, uh, TI6AL4V which goes by some other names as well. So for people in the industry listening, you might recognize it as TC4, TI64, or ASTM grade five. Um, but what I thought was cool is that you could use these thrusters in two types of modes, uh, depending on where they were in the mission. Uh, the first type is called blowdown mode. And this is just when you don't pressurize your tank externally. Just whatever gas is in there is in there. And so when you use it as a thruster, you, you know, expend some of that fuel or some of that propellant, then you end up basically not being able to thrust as hard the next time because there's, you know, just less in there. Uh, the pressure decreases, uh, right? As that, you know, whatever gas was in there expands to take up uh, an even greater space uh, from the now missing propellant. And so this blowdown mode, though, they characterize very, very well uh, exactly how much that uh, degrades over time. And so you can use it for very uh, accurate uh, maneuvers and, and as well as, you know, uh, attitude control. And then uh, the other type of mode, I guess, which is what, you know, more familiar with is pressure regulated where you do have, in this case, helium tanks, right? Why not helium? It's always helium. Uh, you know, coming in and pressurizing <laughs> your, your, your propellant tanks. This blowdown mode, for example, was used, uh, you know, I think early in the mission, and but its first major uh, trajectory correction was done in pressure regulated mode, but most of the time it was in blowdown mode. And so it was really cool that I was able to jump back and forth and they could repressurize the tanks twice from this blowdown mode, like, right? I mean, do you eventually tailor off your thrust to a point where, you know, it's, it's no longer useful? Well, fine, you can repressurize uh, your tank uh, to get it back up there. And then another fun little uh, uh, behind the scene, uh, a fun little coincidence, maybe not coincidence, but little, you know, little factoid is that the helium tanks for the propulsion system were actually first qualified, those specific types of tanks, on the secondary payload that was lost with Hotbird 7 when the Ariane 5 uh, blew up uh, or was terminated uh, and fell into the ocean. So at the end of the day, you basically get uh, 2.3 kilometers per second at Delta V total, and there's no main engine. It's just these thrusters the whole the whole time. Some of them, uh, most of them are at the corners of the box of the spacecraft bus, but there are a few, I think four, uh, at one location to basically uh, provide the, the large maneuvers. And uh, ultimately you get one, one millimeter per second precision from these. And so I guess that's kind of the value of having something with only 10 newtons of thrust, something uh, so low, uh, you can get that kind of precision. The last thing I want to talk about before reviewing the timeline of the mission uh, on its trip to 67P uh, what is the coordinate system and how the spacecraft is set up and how it basically handles uh, the different instruments on board and different things that it has to do on board and the science and all that good stuff. In the plus X direction, okay, it's X, Y, Z coordinates. The plus X is aimed uh, towards the sun because the negative X is aimed away from the sun the whole time. And so on there you have your uh, star trackers and uh, some of the cameras that need to be extra cold. Uh, and because of that requirement, the high gain antenna, uh, which is also, it kind of folds out from underneath and is on its own little tripod, uh, in the positive x direction is given essentially the ability to steer a full hemisphere, full 
two pi to the radians of the sky. And so uh, that's because, right, if you have to hold the spacecraft bus in a particular attitude and orientation, but you want the high gain to talk to Earth, you got to give it a lot of uh, steering capabilities. Um, and so that's the X direction. The Ys are the solar panels, right? It's got the two large wings sticking out of the two sides of the spacecraft. No uh, fans or any kind of interesting, or the circular fans or any kind of interesting uh, setup, really. It's kind of classic Kerbal solar panels. And then the plus Z direction is the one that would point towards the comet once it reaches the comet. And so you could think of it as the spacecraft, when it was orbiting 67P, Churyumov-Gerasimenko, it's essentially doing a orbital uh, cartwheel. And it's facing, the, its face is aimed towards the sun, the top of its head is aimed towards the comet, and it's just doing a cartwheel around it slowly. Okay, now the mission itself. Well, in, it launched in 2004, and a year later, it uh, imaged deep impact striking Comet Temple 1, which I believe we had done as another TWISIF in the past. In 2006, they identified some RCS problems. There were uh, some leaks, so the thrusters were operating actually at a lower pressure than they needed, and the reaction wheels on board started exhibiting some noise as well. They had both, but it wasn't an issue, <laughs> ultimately, uh, because they figured with the propellant margins and a more efficient operating mode for the wheels and some new software to allow the spacecraft to operate in hybrid mode, which I assume means uh, using both the thrusters as well as only two of the wheels. Uh, basically, they could reduce it so that they only really needed two wheels uh, for, for their orientation and everything. And so that didn't sink it, which is good because uh, that would really stink, right? You've got this decade-long trip out there, and two years in, you're finding your RCS system uh, has some issues. And uh, in 2008, it flew by its first asteroid, uh, 2867 Staines. And uh, a few years later, it flew by 21 Lutetia that I recognized or that I mentioned earlier as being uh, uh, improving uh, this week's clue. And then finally, uh, sometime after that, I believe it was the next year, it went into a long hibernation mode for 31 months. And then in 2014, it awoke. Um, it was beyond 4.6 AU at this point, and so really far out there. They basically start spinning it around that plus X axis uh, in the direction of the high gain antenna. And um, th there was a, a reservoir in its uh, propellant management device um, uh, that it used for spinning up and uh, spinning down the spacecraft. Um, which, by the way, propellant management devices are really neat. Um, it's essentially a way to deal with your ullage. Uh, without, right? Think about it, right? If you have this blowdown mode, right? You're not, um, well, I guess you could thrust to try to, you know, have bullish thrusters or something. But in any event, essentially, uh, a propellant management device is uh, a system you set up using, um, uh, like, baffles and vanes and things like this. And you take advantage of the surface tension of your propellant so that whatever gas cavity there is, is always going to stay away from the outlet of the tank. Hmm. And so it's 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 a cool way to deal with this uh, issue here. Um, and so yeah, propellant management devices and weightlessness, right? That's something you do not want. <laughs> you do not want the gas to go yeah. to the outlet. <laughs> That'd be trouble. Basically, it gets to the it get it got to Churyumov Gerasimenko, and unlike Giotto and Stardust, which were uh, flybys and uh, had issues uh, in particular, I think it was Stardust. One of them was almost lost because of a a, a debris strike. Um, but those were moving at uh, 70 kilometers per second and 6 kilometers per second, respectively. While uh, Rosetta, during its approach, uh, 
was going to have dust impacts that weren't going to be nearly the issue that Giotto and Stardust uh, had encountered. Uh, uh, the initial approach velocity was something like 25 meters per second and then down to 1.5 meters per second uh, when it really got close to the to the comet. And so, yeah, and um, unlike Hayabusa, this uh, Rosetta actually went into orbit around 67p, uh, making it the, you know, the record winner until OSIRIS-REx beat that of orbiting the least massive object. And then it did its science. <laughs> Things were great. It had its lander. And there's all sorts of cool stuff to talk about at another time. But for now, that is this week in spaceflight history. All right, Dennis, that was awesome. Thank you. I didn't think you were going to get so much out of Rosetta, like a, a mission that we're so familiar with. Like you, you really got some, some good new stuff in there. So thank you. Uh, next week is going to be the 8th through the 14th of March. Uh, normally be my turn, but I'm going to take next week off. So, uh, David, do you have a clue for us? I do. This is actually your clue. So you came up with it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but uh, the clue is for next week in 2013, watery potato. And I think all potatoes are watery, really. At least they should be. I don't think you want a desiccated potato. So that's your clue. And if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Let's do upcoming spaceflight events, then three launches and one other interesting thing happening. So what's the first launch, Ben? Yeah, unfortunately, the show is going to come out after Goes T launches, but we mentioned it last week, so I think we're okay. Uh, so our first launch is going to be uh, Falcon 9 Block 5, launching Starlink Group 49. Um, this is going to be another batch of 46 Starlinks. I believe it was 4.8 that launched into a higher altitude than normal, I believe is like a precaution against having, uh, what, like 80% of their, uh, uh, of their, uh, payloads deorbit within a week. I, I think 4.8 did that. And I think that the reason they launched 46 satellites on 4.8 was because they needed extra delta v and so this is also 46 uh, uh 46 satellites in group 49 so i i think i think i'm interpreting this correctly that that's also going to be going to a higher altitude but um i could have my numbers mixed up uh so this is going to be launching on thursday march 3rd at 1432 hours utc and uh, that's launching out of kennedy as usual all right and then the next day on march 4th we have the launch of a soyuz and that is launching OneWeb 14 this is just another one web delivery um, in this case uh, it will be 36 satellites and of course uh, this is for broadband communication you know the story uh, on a soyuz 2.1b uh, with uh, the frigate upper stage and it will be launching from Baikonur Cosmodrome at 2241 UTC or 541 on the east coast here uh, but either way I don't know if you're going to be able to watch that and then our final launch to close out this week of just, like David said, just tossing more stuff up there. <laughs> um, all megasats or mega constellations. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we have a, a date but not a time. So on March 8th, we've got Falcon 9 Block 5 taking Starlink Group 410, the next in the sequence. And so this one will be launching at a slick 40. We don't have the time, but again, that's March 8th. Yeah, I guess, I guess I should have mentioned that, uh, Starlink Group 49 is launching out of 39A. So then we have a quick turnaround to launch out of, uh, let's launch out of 40. Um, and then finally, we've got a non-launch thing. Um, this is a spacewalk preview briefing. I love these. That's going to be on March 8th at 2 p.m. Eastern on NASA TV. So it's, 
uh, presumably for Spacewalk 49, which is going to be doing uh, IROSA 3A. Very cool. Um, so maybe a little bit of a boring uh, briefing because we've seen this exact procedure happen um, a couple times over. Um, but the get ahead tasks, you know, they're, they're a little bit of a potpourri and that, that could be fun to watch. All right. Well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And with that, let's gear over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Deathkin, Mike, Colin, the Greek, VT, Anderson, Kenton, and Chubby for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well as these fine folks, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. And be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that is it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.